like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Live on Four Legs Pod. And uh, there's a woman up in the back. You've got a white umbrella. You know who you are. All the security people, will you let the woman with the white umbrella right through and come up on the side of the stage and we'll see you at the next song, okay? You hear that, security people? The woman with the white umbrella is fine. It's like a pass. Just let her through, okay? Thank you. And uh, here's some uh, music while she comes in. And away we go. You're listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring... Mr. Stone Gossett! Fucking camera in the truck. everybody now welcome to live on four legs a definitive live pearl jam podcast and we have a jam-packed one for you today we are covering pittsburgh 2000 it's known for a lot of things it has a lot of guests and we are also going to have the guest that was on this show some of you might know her as the girl with the white umbrella but we know her as amy And we're going to have Amy on and we're going to talk to her about everything that happened that day and leading up to her going on stage and getting a moment of a lifetime. So that's very exciting. This episode is also a Patreon request from our patron, Eric. So excited to get that for him. And it's the last show of that first leg in 2000 that followed up on Roskilde. So as you know, a lot of emotional shows happen from this. Uh, you can go back to Virginia Beach, of course. You can go back to Jones Beach. And they were really using this time to get through a tragedy. And this being the last stop, as you'll kind of see throughout the show, it kind of felt like a big weight off their back and a relief. So we'll get into all of that. But first, Randy Sobel over here, John Farrar over there. Hello, hello. Big show today. Yeah. This one snuck up on me a little bit. Like, I remembered the story of Amy, but hadn't listened to it in a long time. So, yeah, going back and looking at this, like, yeah, I mean, Amy got a shout-out in the Pearl Jam 20 book. She gets a shout-out in Five Horizons. So, yeah, her story has definitely been out there. It was great to talk to her and get a first-hand account of it. Before we go to her, like, let's just kind of look back 
at this leg a little bit and kind of talk about what this all meant. And, you know, this being the last date and knowing that when they come back for the second leg, things would be a little bit more loose. They'd feel more like a Pearl Jam show. It never went away, of course, but it felt like they needed this whole entire leg to sort of get through it. This show definitely has a theme of like, release and catharsis and just kind of letting go of everything that they'd gone through from the past year and just kind of channeling it all through this performance and there's a lot of stuff a lot of really good performances on here that i think are prime examples of them doing that i mean i think five horizons mentioned that the band is very manic tonight i think the word that they used and it's like yeah they were definitely looking to release some energy on stage that's not like definitely celebrating getting through this leg and and kind of like the rebirth of Pearl Jam as it were like getting back to to what they do and like obviously not not forgetting and not moving on but taking it with them and having it make them turn them into something else and something better well we'll get more into that as the episode goes on but of course you guys want to hear from Amy because her story is incredible and it's just one of those once in a lifetime type deals. It feels like we talk a lot about this stuff, but let's just put it this way. Every time we do talk about it, it's still once in a lifetime. And just because we happen to have people on doesn't mean it's any less amazing than it is. It is 100% fully amazing all the time. And Amy was wonderful. I just want to, you know, for anybody that's that's thinking out there, you know, wow, she went to so many shows. What's she at now? She's at around 400. So we got to talking a little bit to her about how this all started and that will develop into the whole umbrella and how that all kind of got put together. So just listen to a great interview. Here's Amy. My grandmother and my father both said something along the lines of follow your bliss. And well, (laughs) there you go. I just fell in love with the music and it was just so meaningful to me and I've always enjoyed traveling and I kind of put the two together because I had traveled to see other bands before I started following Pearl Jam. But with Pearl Jam, and it really goes down to like their uniqueness as a band is that every night was different. And like back in the 90s, like you didn't have the internet, like maybe you'd have somebody would send you a cassette tape in the mail, like you didn't know what was going to happen. And there was no way to actually like even come close to experiencing it without actually being there. So got on an airplane and, you know, went. And for me, it wasn't even in, I had thought that I was going to contain like the touring in like a two or three week, you know, vacation period from work. But then it was in Europe in 96, just got, you know what? Nope, this is it. I'm taking off time. I'm going to go see them when they tour. And I had to come back to the States for like a week, came back, worked, managed to get the rest of the time off and then flew back to Europe for the rest of the tour. So, you know, this brings me joy. So here I am. When did it start for you? Was this like a 1991, 1992 thing where you heard this at like a formative age and were like, yeah, this is it? Like, well, when did, when did this all start for you? Well, I, I first heard Pearl Jam like right when 10 came out. They played yeah. it on the radio all the time. And I hadn't seen them when they played in Phoenix, like it was the Mason Jar. But then they were opening up for the Chili Peppers. And I don't like the Chili Peppers. 
So I didn't go. I kind of wish I did. But then the next time they came to Phoenix, they played Lollapalooza, which I had a really bad experience at another Lollapalooza, the one with Nine Inch Nails. So I didn't go to that. I've, I've never liked festivals. And so then the very next time was when they came on the Versus tour and they played at Mace Amphitheater. So that was the first time mm-hmm. in the legendary like couple weeks of shows in the fall of 1993. There were some amazing shows on there. But I didn't travel anywhere. I just stayed here in Phoenix. And then I moved to LA after that. And I can't remember. I know that was a very like busy time in my life with a lot of stuff. So I don't know. They played those shows in 95 that you had to call on the phone and then like send a check in, but you had to like put the check numbers in on the touchtone phone. You had to like enter your check numbers. It was like the craziest thing. So I, I only saw a couple shows in 95. And then 96, I flew up to Seattle, saw that show. And then funny thing is, then I come back to work and I got jury duty. And I got released from jury duty, but I didn't have to go back to work till Monday. So I thought, oh, I'll go to Charlotte and go see Pearl Jam. So I flew to Charlotte and then I met a whole bunch of people that were actually following the tour. They were going to Europe and that's when it like planted like the bug in my head, like I should go to Europe. Hey, that that's pretty good from that early on. And I really wonder because now like to get to a hundred shows doesn't feel like a massive achievement, you know, because it's been over 30 years. Like it's still big. It's still massive. I don't want to put it down, but I guess what I'm saying is that like, you could see it after a, a long time, like people having the time to follow them. There've been big tours, Oh three, Oh six on and on. But back then it was so rare to see that. Did you ever think that, of course, this being on bootleg and bootlegs being a new thing and everybody wanting to collect those, that other fans hear that and it makes them want to travel more? But there were always other people. There was people that I met in 96, friendships with people that I formed from 96 that don't even, you know, tour anymore. So there were always people. And I think... I would say in 96, there was maybe five or six people, maybe a few more. And then in 98, there, a few more people came in. And then in 2000, there were, I would say, probably a couple of dozen people that were touring. And so I think one of the things that when Ed was like, oh, my God, 100 shows, he couldn't believe it. But I don't think they had kind of recognized what was happening in the audience. Like, it was sort of this, like, organic thing that happened where the band and the fans kind of developed this symbiotic relationship. But I don't think at that point, like they realized what was going on yet. And they didn't realize it until later on. That's interesting. So they didn't get that there was a whole kind of following parade of people that were at every show. And and he even mentions it here. He said he saw you a couple times during the tour he's like oh basically the last 12 days or something how often did you hold that up because that you know outdoors indoors like what what was the whole thing behind that well in europe in june a friend of mine olivier had a white umbrella that he had in berlin and he held it up and i don't even know if they saw it and then he actually lost the umbrella on the way to Hamburg. And then the next night was maybe Stockholm or something. 
And then all of a sudden the umbrella like appeared again. Some, but some other fan had found the umbrella and had brought it along. And then, you know, everything happened with the way that the tour ended and, you know, everything with Roskild, the umbrella kind of fell away and wasn't really thinking about that. And then we were in New York for the Jones Beach shows and it was raining. One of the, I think it might've even been like the first night, maybe. And so I had to go buy rain stuff and I went into the store and there was a white umbrella and I thought, oh, I should make a wash umbrella. So I had it um, from Jones Beach. I pretty sure I had it there. I mean, all three nights there. And then I know that in some of those places, like, even though it was all outside venues then, like, sometimes they wouldn't let you bring them in. So I don't think I had it every night along the way. I had it the night before Pittsburgh, which was in Maryland, Columbia, Maryland. And I know I had it in Jones Beach and all of those other shows, maybe in Saratoga. I held it up too. I can't remember exactly where. Now, you know, going back a couple years from that point, you know, you had 1998, Hard to Imagine had come back, of course, the Breath campaign. And at that point, we were sitting at, you know, 1996, you were talking about that European tour that that had been the last time that they had played Wash. Yeah, so, they played it in Hamburg. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if, was that your friend's goal? Was Was it because it was something that hadn't been played a long time or is was something that was it his favorite song like why wash to be the one i think because it hadn't been played in a long time okay i don't know i mean i it was one of those things like i never we never really talked about like why he had it and then like why i had it well the only reason i had it is because i needed an umbrella and there was a (laughs) white one and i thought oh (laughs) (laughs) and you did it at every single show anyway yeah. <laughs> kind of lived the tradition, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Let's go to the day now because this has to be totally unexpected. Let's cut to the moment because he doesn't say your name. He says the girl with the white umbrella. Like when he said that, did that like catch on to you right away? When I'd had the umbrella at other shows, like he had acknowledged me. It wasn't just like maybe not so much the first night, but. He was acknowledging me, acknowledging the umbrella. And so that particular night, they had opened with Evenflow. And my seat was like, it was one of those outside pavilions, but I was like all the way at the very back. And the, like the third section, like really when I say like all the way back, I was like all the way back. And so they so came out. Like they, almost next to where the grass is. Exactly. So the point was to get them to open with wash. And... From the beginning, from when Olivier had the umbrella in Europe. And so I'm all the way in the back. It had actually been like a really lousy day. We got to the venue late. We got pulled over twice on the way from Columbia to Pittsburgh that day. Got into the venue like right at the last minute on this lousy ticket. They didn't start with wash. So I kind of opened the umbrella up and I kind of flashed it. And Ed pointed at me and like was like, hey, I see you. And I was like, all right, well, I'm putting it away and I'm just going to enjoy the rest of the show. So then when he said the woman with a white umbrella, then I was like, oh my goodness. And all I thought was they're going to play it. I'm so excited they're going to play it. Then he was like, well, security let her down. And I wasn't quite sure what to do. And I walked out into the aisle and Pete was like right there, like, it wasn't completely unplanned. I mean, Pete was there waiting for me. And so he escorted me down to the stage. 
you know, they were playing Crazy Mary and I was kind of sort of like not paying attention that much to the sign because I, I'm walking down with Pete and, you know, I was a long ways up and we had to walk all the way down. And then when I got to the stage and like they walked me right onto the side of the stage to where the side stage monitors were and I was sitting on those and I sat down on those like right when Ed does that oh part and I could you know feel the vibrations like because they were coming through the monitor and it was just like this like intense like feeling of like butterflies and you know nervousness but then like joy and all this other stuff and for years after that, like every time in Crazy Mary, when that whoa part would come on, I would still get like butterflies in my stomach oh, wow. thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, like that particular experience of like sitting on the monitors during Crazy Mary is probably like the most powerful memory that I have of the events because then it gets just completely like off the rails. Right. So they get you on stage and they acknowledge and he kind of talks to you off mic and everything like that and like what was being on stage like this doesn't happen you know nearly next to no times does this happen to anybody that's in the crowd that gets a moment like this yeah i don't think at that point it had happened before i think it was one of the first times that somebody came up there i was yeah like stage fright and then you know, the lights were bright and I couldn't hear anything. And there were like, you know, all these people. And so I was kind of like doing okay, like holding it together. And then he kind of said, okay, well, we're going to play the song. <laughs> like, but well, well, actually one of the other memories I have when I was talking to Ed, like he was right in like close to my face and he was like looking at me like so intently and like in the back of my head, I'm like, what the fuck is the matter with his eyes? <laughs> uh, they had just played Crazy Mary, so well, perhaps uh, yeah. that was it. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Like, uh, maybe I was like trying to hide something. I don't know. So we go through like, uh, you know, my name and where I'm from and all the shows. And then he was talking about, okay, we're going to give this a try. He's like, we didn't rehearse it. I don't remember any of the words. So you're going to have to tell me what the words are. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't remember the words. I'm like, I can't even remember to breathe right now. And when I said that, he's like, oh, okay. He like kind of tapped me. And then he like went and grabbed Stone's stool or somebody's stool and like sat me down on it. And then so sat down, he starts singing, they start playing. I'm sitting on the stool. He's got like his arm around me. And to say that I'm like freaking out is an understatement. And I looked and my friend Rich was down in the front row and I was like, oh yeah, at least there's like somebody that I know. And so I was looking at him and then at a certain point, like everybody else is behind me, like Matt and well, you know who everybody else is. <laughs> They're behind me and I thought, okay, I'm never going to be here again. I really need to just like take this in, like this whole moment, just absorb it all. So I turned around to look at like Matt and then like Jeff was there and Stone and Mike, they were kind of doing that little jammy thing. And then Ed like pushed the stool like into like the middle of that. And then they kind of stood there. And then at that point, like Ed pushing me on the stool was like, just pushed me over the edge. Cause I was like, all right, now this is way too much for like one brain to handle at the moment. And then that was it. You know, at the end they all like shook my hand and like, 
you know, hugged me and kissed me or, you know, and then I, I went back and sat on the stage for the rest of the show, the side of the stage. Well, what an experience that was, especially like, you know, you said that next to nobody had gotten on stage at that point. And, you know, even now it's, you know, a 0.001% or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. You have to be very lucky, be in the right situation at the right time. And what a story. And, you know, you're kind of now in this like history book of Pearl Jam as, you know, this fan figure that people that talk about their show go to that right away. And I'll talk well, about see, I even don't think that's. I don't really? think that's like my no- notoriety. My my notoriety is I'm the person that whenever anybody's family says, what do you need to go see Pearl Jam so many times for? I'm the one that then gets brought up as the example. Well, you know, there's this oh, woman. I think that's that's better because now you're right. You're getting into the family <laughs> conversation. This isn't just Pearl Jam fan to Pearl Jam fan. We should mention, I think I came in, you said you're at over 400 now, right? That's like more than one out of every three since the beginning. That's very impressive. Like, boom, just passed you a a couple of tours ago. Yeah, there was a time a number of years ago where I had been to over 50% of the shows. Wow. Amy, thank you for joining us tonight. And yeah, what wonderful stories those were. And, And really you being one of the first people to really get on stage. And, and like you said, it's a household thing now where Pearl Jam fans are telling their family about you. It's just incredible to hear the the story about it and kind of what went down. So thank you so much for sharing with us and everybody else listening. And I'm happy to take the heat for being the, you know, it's not that bad. I don't go to see that many shows. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, a huge thank you goes out to Amy for joining us, for talking and reliving that. Because just, again, I can't say the phrase enough. It's once in a lifetime. And yep. we mentioned it a couple times in there that that really wouldn't happen before she got the opportunity to. So it's fantastic. It was just great to hear those stories and, and get that side of the equation. Yeah, amazing that she, you know, remembers all that so well after being at so many shows. I think she even mentioned that the show is like not in her top 25, which is right. pretty incredible. That's some high standards. But definitely thanks, Amy, for taking the time and coming on and relating the story. Because, yeah, I think like we mentioned, like there is no video for this show. So that would be really good to have to get to see it. But we don't have that. So it was great of her to come on and tell that story. Well, you know, we got Amy on, and I think it's all thanks to Eric Bratfold for pitching this episode through Patreon. And, like, we already had two Pittsburgh shows in the books to do this year because of other requests. And when he put this on the board, I'm like, okay, I got to find a place because we want to do it. And then I had gotten to talk to Amy a little bit, and I was just like, hey, if you want to come on, we got to get you on. Like, this has to happen. So Eric got pushed to the front. It's the first of the three Pittsburgh shows. So, John, why don't you share his story about why he picked this show and why this means something to him? Yeah, Eric wrote in and said, I've always been a big fan of the binaural shows, as it is always and continues to be my favorite album. 
2000 was a big year personally for me as I became a father for the first time. So whenever I hear shows from the U.S. or European legs of the binaural tour, it brings me back to the summer of 2000 when my daughter Kate was born and changed my life forever. So other than bringing up a lot of sentimental feelings from that time in my life, the 2000 Pittsburgh show is one of my faves for several reasons. Anytime they open with even flow, followed up with hail, hail, and nothing as it seems is played, it's automatically at the top of my list. But my favorite part of the show is the cover of I Got You. I think they've only played it a few times over the years, but I think it is one of my favorite covers they've ever done. And ending the show with insignificance and Baba is pretty tough to beat. Every time I hear that version, I always remember Eddie saying, Keely, hit the lights before the last chorus. So, so there you have it, one of my favorite Pearl Jam shows of all time. Thanks for including me and give my regards to Amy, the Umbrella Lady. So regards to Amy from Eric. Take care. Regards to Amy. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Yeah, definitely. Good stuff. Yeah. Hey, everybody's story is important. We want to tell everybody's story from the people that went on stage to the people that were in the way, 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 way back that were experiencing something different. So, and even the people that were listening to on bootleg too. So, all right. We asked a question of the week this week, and it was kind of pertaining to sort of what went down with Amy and the white umbrella. So I asked people, what are some of your favorite in-show fan interaction moments? And it doesn't mean like, oh, yeah, there was a good sing-along on a live or even Flo Jeremy or something like that. But a memorable moment where the band has interacted with a crowd member, brought them on stage in a lucky moment or something like that, that, you know, has kind of implanted on the minds of people that went to the show remembering, oh, wow, this band went on stage for this. So we had a couple of them. I'm going to share a couple, and we're just going to run right through these. So Eric Ramsey from Twitter says, the person in the cow suit at Great Woods on the binaural tour. And I believe that was kind of a running theme at Mansfield after a while, because there was the moment where Stone and a cow utter, and you guys hopefully know the rest. Don't have to repeat that. But Gabe says here, Baltimore 2013, Ed shouting out a guy wearing yellow in the back at the top of the arena who's dancing his ass off. So Ed calls him down to the stage for rocking in the free world, and he's dancing his ass off during a killer version of that. That's a good one. And from Matt Durda, from Matt Durda and the High Watts, the Bridge School version of Last Kiss. I'm going to guess he means the first original one in 1999 where Ed is singing directly to Maricor has always been a favorite. Yeah, that, that one is right up there. And, and literally, you know, what has made the Bridge School so important is that's one of the reasons. Oh, that might be the one. Yeah. I remember that we talked about that on Patreon. That was incredible. So what do you got from the folks over at Facebook? Yeah, from the podcast community group. C.R. Warren, I believe from New Zealand, says he can't remember the exact show, but there's one from the Canada 2005 tour. And before leaving here, Eddie talks about a girl who got dumped and the dude took her ticket and is at the show with a new girl. Eddie brings the dumped girl up on stage to rub into the ex's face that she's a catch and she's hanging backstage, then goes on to fuck up the intro of leaving here three times in a row. We've also got Tom Gregory who pointed out Dr. John getting released at Wrigley. That was a huge moment. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, good one. Christian Anderson wrote in, said Halloween 2000. Ed brought up two people addressed as Al Gore and George W. Bush and had them battle it out on stage with Al Gore being victorious. 
And then the last one where you and I were there, Mark Kirby wrote it and said, St. Louis 2022 with the air drumming fan who got a shout out. Said oh, yeah. that uh, Ed really appreciated his air drumming. He was doing a great job. Yep. He was like basically right behind me. And yeah. if I had yeah. stayed in my original seats, he probably would have been, I guess, a couple rows in front. So, yeah. That's a good one. Other ones that were mentioned on Twitter and I think were kind of shared, mentioned on Twitter and Facebook, just to run down a few more. Spokane, where the guy got on stage, the guy with dreads, and they shaved his dreads during Brandon J. Of course, that's a pretty popular one. Josh Arroyo being -hmm. picked out of the crowd to play in Oakland. Fantastic. Saskatoon, where the guy comes out of the crowd to sing Running Back to Saskatoon. That's a good one. Yeah. Well, you could also include, you know, the Ghost of Crazy Mary and yeah. the release from, uh, what was it, Bonner Springs? Bonner Springs, with the, yep. yep. with the, the lightning and thunder and everything. So those, those are included, probably. Yep. Easy ones. Thank you, everybody, for submitting. Yeah. It was good to go Great back stuff. on memory lane for that one. Okay. So a little thing that went down before the show. As you might know, a huge part of this leg was that Sonic Youth had been opening for them. And Sonic Youth had always been a huge inspiration of Ed's and the rest of the band. So the tragedy and everything that was kind of going on and having to go through the grieving process, they were there for a lot of it and helping the guys get through it. And it was very, very important after a while. And unfortunately, they did not have Kim and Thurston and the full band didn't get to play on the last night of this. So they had to kind of improv and and take a couple things into account. And that means Ed came on, did a couple of songs just solo by himself. And they did a couple with the guys that were left over from Sonic Youth, as well as Sonic Youth actually kind of had their own set, like doing stuff in between. So the two that Ed came out and did first are Trouble and Dead Man. And these are pretty much songs. It's very, very hard to find them in a full set. They're usually preset songs. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know what? Dead Man hasn't been played since 2007. I think Trouble only sporadically if since then as well. But yeah, Cat Stevens cover, I believe, is, is Trouble. So that's one he will definitely do on the solo tours. But you're, yeah, very, very rarely in a Pearl Jam show. So it's a little bit tough on the recording of these. You know, this was not featured on a bootleg or anything like that. So also a big thank you goes out to Patrick Bogle for digging this up. And we had thought that maybe he was going to spend a lot of time digging it up. But apparently when he opened up the box, it was right there, the CD, everything like that. So he actually went through, put the CD in a converter and got the MP3s that way. Thanks for doing that. And, you know, now we have all this. Maybe we'll release this as a little bonus to the patrons this week. That would be a cool little, little bonus for there. Anything you like specifically from these two? I thought Dead Man was great. I think Dead Man is always great. This version, I think, is very moody and very kind of emotional and stark, which is, you know, just the way that the song should be. I thought it was fantastic. I mean, again, the theme of this show is kind of the catharsis and kind of the letting go of the weight of the previous month of being on tour and, like, the celebration of of getting through. And I think Dead Man opening up, like, Ed is kind of tapping into that a little bit and kind of making it a little bit more moody and, and bringing some emotion into it. I thought it was very, very good. So that 
leads you into the last thing that Ed is going to do, like, as, I guess, Ed's preset before the leftover guys from Sonic Youth do a little bit. He invites all of them on, Lee, Steve, and Jim, and there's also a guitar tech named Eric that gets invited out, too, that does the set with Sonic Youth. And they're going to do what ends up being the fourth version of Parting Ways. This is the binaural tour, mind you. He had not been doing that to that point. It felt like it got spliced into the mix a lot more on the second leg, but this is kind of one of the things that when you look at it and you look at the details and you're like, whoa, this is in the preset and whoa, look at who it involved. It almost feels in a way like kind of like a fantasy moment, if you know what I mean. This song that barely gets played and it has accompaniment from the Sonic Youth guys, that seems like something that you would come up with on sort of like a rainy day, like, but it would never come to fruition like that, right? But this was awesome. Again, one of the weirdest stats in Pearl Jam history is that, you know, like you said, this is only the fourth performance of Parting Ways. They had done this the night before too, and so half of the performances of Parting Ways at this point had been with half of Sonic Youth which is just crazy to think about. But, I mean, yeah, Lee Ronaldo is a, an incredible guitar player. Steve Shelley's a great drummer. This is definitely the highlight of the preset. This version, I mean, when that heavy part kicks in, and I was waiting for it, like, yeah, let's see what they can do with this. And, yeah, it, it lived up to the expectations because it gets really heavy and really thundering and powerful. Like, it comes through even on the audience recording that this is a really, really powerful performance. Once you hear those strums towards the end, like in the jammy part, and you hear those strums and like kind of ring out, like you can tell like there's a bite to it. Yeah, Thunderous is a good way to put that. And they just kind of rip into a big ending there. of the guys after watching backstage saying okay when's our turn right because this was yeah powerful powerful presence on this yeah and not a great recording but you can hear the whole thing develop really really well so they do their set and it's all sonic youth stuff i'm not a huge sonic youth guy so that's I guess more for John, but we'll cut right back to where Ed comes back on stage with them. So it's at the end and they invite him on stage for a Who song, which Ed had said was fairly obscure. And it's a song called Naked Eye.
So this is something really obscure in the Who catalog. It's a B-side. It's an Odds and Sods song. This is really out of left field for them. It's a good performance, too. If, you know, going back and listening to the original of this as well, it feels like they stay pretty true to what that sound was. Oh, yeah, you know Ed's going to do it just like Daltrey did and just like Pete Townsend. He's not going to stand for any retakes on, on any Who material. He's going to keep it pretty faithful. Again, I'm not a Who super fan. Like, I'm very, very casual, and I own a couple of the records. But this is not a song that I'm familiar with. But listening to it, I was like, oh, I've heard this before. But, yeah, it's a good little song. Like, it reminded me a lot of, like, some of those kind of throwaway Pearl Jam B-sides, like your Leathermans and U's that end up being pretty good songs and pretty poppy and catchy. So I thought it was really good right in that vein. So it makes sense that I'd be into it. All right. Now, since we took care of the preset, we're getting right into the show. And we're going to get right into the show with something that hadn't happened since Canberra, Australia in 1995. This is the first time that they have opened with Evenflow since that very day. to go back to this one because up until last year at Pink Pop that was the last Mm -hmm. time that they had done it so that was the big talking point when we had heard it and they they did that and we all thought oh maybe they could do the whole entire Pink Pop set I mean it was possible they played Why Go as the second song but it had been a really really long time and the way that they take the stage the crowd goes wild for them and then you kind of hear that riff come right in and it is still even like listening and just sort of sitting down to get ready to to listen to this it's a little surprising like you almost don't expect it at all because it's just so different than almost anything that they've done with the song like yeah if we were listening to a 1992 show i wouldn't have batted an eye but this is 2000 Evenflow had firmly been in the Evenflow spot. Sometimes in like 96 and 98, they were using it in the encore, but as an opener, you know, maybe a little bit in the first four or so that if they were feeling, you know, frisky on that day, they would do it. But coming right out of the gate and getting this started with this gave this show a whole dynamic that set the tone right from the start. Last night at tour shows, I mean, we've covered our fair share of them, and they're always noteworthy for different reasons, and they always seem to be a little bit off the wall, and something out of left field will will come up that have these little twists in them, and this starts off with one. This is definitely a last night of tour, fuck it, 
we're gonna go out and start with even flow yeah it's wasting no time like mike solo's wasting no time it's not like he's trying to kind of ease into it and then kind of explode like right away he's into it and really it's a very fast version the next four or five are all gonna be speed trials here from hell hell to animal to corduroy to grievance and it really like hell hell played off of that momentum really well like hell hell was a blistering speed version of that and really tight too like all these are are super tight like they just feel like they're onto something at this show like like we kind of mentioned before how loose this show is like you can tell right off the top they're just like fuck it let's see what we can do let's see how much we can impress them tonight yep letting it all hang out i mean they got what three weeks off after this four weeks so yeah don't leave anything on stage I thought Hell Hell was a really good highlight, but I also thought Corduroy is probably the one from this. Yeah, yeah, Corduroy, for sure. Outside of everything else, it just felt like a classic Corduroy, where everything from the bridges to every escalated sing-along moment had the big surge, had the big takeoff, the solo was classic for Corduroy, like everything felt like the version that you want to hear, especially from 2000. Yeah, the build before the solo, I think, is the best part. Matt is just, like, solid on that bass drum. Just thump, 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 thump. It just builds the tension, like, going into that solo. It's just a super big release moment where you're just like, oh, just, just let it wash over you. It all comes down to, like, building around the tension and, having, like you said, having it be tight and then building up to that moment in the solo when it all comes, like, crashing down. Four of these songs really had that mentality of just go out there and leave it all out there. Grievance was fantastic. It was a fantastic collection. If you want to go and say, like, the set list construction for this is amazing, yeah, this is part oh. of what makes that excellent. Yeah, I mean, you had mentioned on social media a couple weeks ago, it was like, hey, what are your top ten favorite songs right now? I think they did six or seven of them at this show, and, like, a couple of ones in my top ten weren't even written at this point. Wow. So... Yeah, I mean, this is this is like, hey, let's go play John's favorite 30 songs. This is a really good set list. I mean, I'm going to be a little selfish. Like, it felt like this set list was, like, tailored to me. Like, I wish I, I would take this at any show I go to. Well, gee, look at the next song. Look at what the yeah. next song is. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, anytime that in my tree is in a set, like you just hand the mic right over, you're gonna speak beautiful words about it. So, Cameron again, Cameron had a really good show right on it from the very beginning. Again, doing kind of the, the Jack style on it, trying to hint at a little bit of that tribal rhythm. When the symbols come in at the end, he was really writing those symbols at the end of In My Tree. Very, very cool. But the moment I think on this one is Stone's lead over the solo. Yes. Perfect. I don't know if you could call it a counter melody, but it's complimentary. It's just something you... I've never heard in a version of In My Tree before, but it fits perfectly. And then he kind of like matches up with the solo for a minute and they kind of like go together and then they come off again and come back. It just goes to show like what a freaking genius Stone is. Like just be able to pull that out and be like, oh yeah, I'm just going to play a little lead here and it's going to be the most perfect thing that's ever existed. It's at a lower octave. It's at a lower octave and it's kind of, you know, playing off of what Mike is doing. But it's also it was reminiscent of a harmony that two people in a duet would be singing. And again, agree with you like that was the moment of the song. They had great builds. It soars. It has a lot of momentum, but so much impact at the end when they're doing that. It just felt like there was a meaningful connection during that. Ed gets to the mic and says, toast to you on the last night of the tour. No need to save the fingers for tomorrow. No need to save the voice for tomorrow. No tomorrow, just Pittsburgh tonight in order to pace ourselves. The next song was a single off this record. So we're going to go binaural back to back here and go nothing as it seems into light years. Light years is, of course, another one of your songs as well. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think about this version? Very, very good. I mean, Ed has a slight little hiccup on it where I think he messes up the lyrics very quickly. It's not up there with the pink pot from this year and things like that, but coming off of nothing as it seems just gives it a little more power. I thought it was very, very good. And again, Mike is always the highlight of nothing as it seems. But again, Cameron, I thought on nothing as it seems and like yours was very, very good. The guy's just a machine back there and he felt like he was just channeling like lightning and thunder back there. Following those daughter is going to be a pretty big moment of this. And, you know, this is a tour leg where very obviously it's okay dominated the conversation when it came to daughter tags. We know the versions. There are a few of them and they are imprinted on your brains, I'm sure. And this one, they decided to go in another direction. They they could have gone into it's okay, but 
as kind of like a thank you for Sonic Youth for sticking with them and, and helping them get through this ride and this grieving process, they decide to go to a tandem of Sonic Youth songs here, including one that they really hadn't done a lot, which is a tag of Bull in the Heather. that like Sonic Youth didn't play so it's like hey let's give them a little bit of, of what they're missing here and kind of add something to it and give them a, a little spotlight in the middle of the show I think the story too from Five Horizons that Ed ran off the stage during Daughter and came back with the lyric sheet to Bull on the Heather because it is a more of an extended Bull on the Heather than I think they had done before and you can kind of picture him singing off of a piece of notebook paper or something but you know, Bull in the Heather is a great Sonic Youth song, Androgynous Mind is a great Sonic Youth song. I think they work really well together here. I think the part of Bull in the Heather that's tagged is is very, very good. I think he picked the right part of it. And then, yeah, when it goes into Androgynous Mind, that just takes me right back to 1994. So, yeah, this was, this was really, really good. You know, yeah, I think this version, unlike other versions of Daughter, where it's more kind of melodic and it's more kind of paced out like they really kind of had the foot on the gas during this and a lot of things going on stone's really really wah-wah heavy on his pedals on this and it felt like more of a charge than sort of more of a groove aspect when you get like a wma tag or or something else along those lines and what i really really liked after the androgynous mind part the music is, is starting to fade out and he's like it's going to be okay Hey, hey, it's okay Hey, hey, it's okay It's gonna be okay It's gonna be okay Just kind of like a, a reminder to everybody else, a reminder to themselves that we went through all this, but we know at this point it's going to be tough to think about, it's going to be tough to go through, but we know that in the end it's going to be okay yeah that was like the unofficial mantra of this tour yep ed back on the mic here seeing as it's the last night of this tour it's been kind of an undertaking we decided to pull out some for the serious collector i believe that is the earliest i have heard him say the serious collector line i don't think there's a show earlier than this that i remember i think i thought there was maybe one from 98 but it, yeah it's got to be one of the first few Right. Not the first. So he, he mentions Leatherman as being a B-side that he didn't think that he had a copy of. So we're not getting a trilogy. It's not a man trilogy, but it's a man duo, which I guess is not unheard of, but a little weird not to have Nothing Mana. Did it take you away from it? or 
No, no, not at all. I mean, I was all into the show by this point, too. It's like, whatever they want to play is fine. I mean, it kind of hit me for a minute after Better Man, like, oh, that'd be cool to, to break out Nothing Man. But yeah, it just wasn't meant to be at this one. It's interesting with Better Man, because I guess you're kind of shifting things around a little bit, where Evenflow is the opener, so what's replacing Evenflow? Pretty much its daughter. That was the yeah. spot. And then... Where Better Man is, is usually kind of where Daughter would be. So now you're elevating another hit song to where Daughter is. And it's kind of in, in the middle of the set here, but uh, just another like big crowd moment in this. I don't think that crowds were really singing on every word at this point in Better Man. That would come a little bit later. It's not a full-on choir that it would become, right. but for 2000 standards, it's really good. And and going back to all that stuff that happened in the beginning of the set, another with just a blistering fast pace. The Save It For Later tag, it felt like they ran through that in seconds. And just a huge surge coming out of the Don't Let Me Down after that. Very electrifying version of Better Man. This is kind of, the set is broken up into little parts. Like you had the fast part of the beginning, kind of the, the soaring part after that. And now you're getting into the more crowd-friendly part with Daughter and Better Man here. And as he's doing Saber for Later, there's a little improv he throws in there. Like, I want to trust you. I want to trust you. Like, again, letting you into like a little bit of what he's thinking about there. But I think before Better Man, he even says like, oh, here's the other man. So yeah, Nothing yep. Man didn't even get a reference. But they did do Dead Man in the preset. So technically there is a man trilogy here. But uh, probably, probably doesn't doesn't count in the official uh-huh. note. But Better Man is becoming the song here. Like I said, it's not there yet to where it would get to, but you can tell like it's it's getting there. Every tour from like '96 to '98, '98 to 2000, 2000 to 2003, it kept getting better and better and more and more engagement. So apparently, this version of Better Man had a special guest because after the version, Ed says, Mr. George Webb helping out on the bass guitar from Pittsburgh and then calls him a rat bastard and said, if we were to go by him, we wouldn't trust any of you all. He's Jeff's bass tech, right? Was that what it was? I think so. Okay, so where was Jeff during this? I have to think that he probably just came and brought him a new bass or something or like had to come in and like plug something in and that's what i was thinking like he had to come on you know the, you'll see the text run on stage and have to like check something or fix something i think he probably did and ed saw him was like oh i'm gonna give him a shout out because he's from here oh okay i i thought that they gave him the moment because yeah again but like we don't have a video so i don't know for sure but that that's where i was picturing when it was happening gotcha, gotcha. I, don't, I think if he had actually been playing bass on the song that that would have been noted somehow Probably. Yeah, you'd probably think. But Ed will say at the end of this, he says the next song has some musical quality to it, and that's going to get into Sleight of Hand. It's a really good point there. It's just a song that's heavily layered and nuanced and has a couple of different directions that it goes in. And somebody that really, really wanted to talk about Sleight of Hand today happens to be the guru himself. So let's ask Javier what he liked about this.
trapped on a road you knew by heart. Hello, Randy. Hello, John. Hello, everyone on the podcast this week. For this week, we are covering Pittsburgh 2000. And the first one that I wanted to talk to, it was uh, a slate of hand. Let's start with basics. As you know, the majority of Pearl Jam songs are played on the guitars tune in E. This song has a very weird fact to it. It's, the guitar is tuned in E, except for the B string. The B string is tuned in A, and that's what is gonna be causing that impression of you having those open chords while they're playing the song. I think this is a good version to talk about the details of what I call for guitar players, the PJ starting pack which will be a very good overdrive, a very good delay pedal, and a very good wah pedal. You can hear so many different tones of overdrives over the song, more intense, less intense, and it's not by the use of effects or multiple stacks of different like overdrive pedals over their boards, it's just the volume knob, controlling, rolling down, being more present in the mix, being in front of the other player, being behind the vocals, being behind the other player. It's a really cool version to hear this. Same thing with delays, clear delays, different tempo delays, warmer delays, darker delays. Everything is combined in one single song in a version that less than five minutes. Same thing with the use of the wah pedal. You can clearly hear the foot down, the foot up to make the song wider, to make it a little bit more compressed, a little bit more tightened up. It's a very, very, very cool version just for you to get on your headphones and listen to every, every, every single detail of their interpretation. It's amazing of how many tones they're getting out of the use of three basic elements that they are considered right now basic in any guitar player boards nowadays. Thanks again, Javier. We will get yep. back to you in a little bit. You will come back. So what did you think about this? I... 100% agree with Javier. Like, basically, it sounded like you were on stage during Slide of Hand. Like, it sounded very, very good. Cameron, I thought, was very, very good, but the way that the song goes it was such a different thing for them at the time to, like, have it be this kind of sparse and open and, like, give it the space to breathe and move. I don't think I've heard a bad version of Slide of Hand. I mean, maybe one of the ones where they hadn't practiced it in a while, but this one I thought was excellent. I agree with Javier for sure. Let's get into the next two that are really not a back-to-back combo that you see very often, given to fly in the last exit. And I think what Ed is kind of saying when he's saying serious collectors and this is going to be a rarity night, you know, last exit, of course, not a rarity, but within the latter half of the set, you don't get to see this in this spot, especially after given a fly, not at all. So given a fly was interesting because it kind of felt very similar to the recorded version, like Mike had kind of an effect, a wavy effect going on in there. And I actually asked Javier about that, and he said what he will talk about a little bit later with either River Mirror or Mankind is that he was using the MXR Phase 90 that was always on the board during that tour. So yeah, that was cool to hear it like that and kind of gave the song sort of its original groove back. And, you know, a little bit after this, they would kind of shy away from it a little bit and kind of go into the full force version of Given to Fly, but I thought that that sounded really good. There's an Ed scream on Given to Fly about halfway through, I think, that like gave me chills, just sat me up in my chair. I was like, wow, like that he's gonna pull that out in the middle of this. Like, you're what 12 songs in at this point, just 
an incredible cathartic release of, of vocal energy and and then at the end like with Cameron again just accenting the toms as he's playing the beat just really playing up the rhythm of it and I thought it was excellent. So we're not closing the set just yet but we are at River Mirror which is very interesting like especially at this point yeah they were still playing with stuff in the set list a little bit later things would be always kind of in their spot but you listen to this and you're kind of like oh this feels like they're closing the set because they're closing the set out pretty strong it's a very strong performance of this but right afterwards it kind of feels like you're getting the first encore starting without actually having to go to break or anything like that it was really fun to listen to that and kind of get that sensation but i think we got to talk i'm gonna let you kind of tee it up here because then we're gonna toss to javier a little bit more about stone there's no lack of stone conversation and his guitar in this bridge was really interesting and was doing something different this is a very good version of rearview mirror all the way through but then when you get to the bridge and i'm, I'm listening to this on headphones and i'm like wait that's a, that's a keyboard like who's playing keyboards on rearview mirror but then it, it keeps going i'm like that's in the right channel like that's stone's guitar why does Stone's guitar sound like a keyboard? I'm thinking, okay, is he playing a Rickenbacker? Like, Rickenbacker guitars are known for having a more, like, kind of rich, kind of piano-esque tone to it. So, yeah, I thought I would take it to Javier and see what he came up with. So, Javier, what'd you come up with? jam session they can get very intense right like or sometimes you, you will hear versions with like a super overdriven bass tone in this case there's a lot of delays a lot of like atmospheric tones and really like cool details about this although it's kind of weird to hear that a stone is creating the tones as he's creating on this version we have talked about this this pedal in the show before but i wanted to dig a little deeper on this this is a pedal that is called the hughes and kepner rotosphere this pedal was designed with the intention to recreate the leslie amplifier for keyboards now the leslie name rings a bell to you it's because someone that we really like who plays keyboards for this band uses a Leslie amplifier for his B3 organ, which is Boom Gasper. Um, the intention of this pedal is to recreate that horn that it goes 360 degrees in a very high setting and a very high speed over the keyboard to create that kind of like piano sound. The pedal is pretty cool. I've had the opportunity to play a few of those over time. You have this little knob that you can make the sound faster or slower. The major complaint is it's too big. And every guitar player that I've met in my life is just like, this is too big to fit it on my board. I thought that it was kind of cool just to talk about that since it's not a common thing the stone will do. And especially because you're kind of like playing piano through the guitar. So yeah, it's a pretty neat thing to talk to this week. All right, we'll see him back for Mankind a little bit later. Thank you for that once again. Great stuff. 
Yeah, along with like just kind of mixing in between, like it sounded like Mike was doing kind of a bluesy thing in the middle of it. And then what I thought sounded really cool at the end, while they're going off into the last little bit to finish, Mike was kind of adding in a chord progression that sounded very similar, not the song, but very similar to War Pigs. A nice touch there, and the sound for that, like it kind of felt like a little bit more distorted than that. So yeah, it was, it was, I don't know if you noticed that, but. Are you talking about during the fast part at the end? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, that's, that little lead there is, is excellent. Even before that, right before that, when kind of at the end of the jam, you've got Mike and Stone kind of going off doing their thing. And you hear this kind of buzzsaw guitar coming right through the middle and it's Ed just strumming, like just dun 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 dun, like just cutting through the middle of that thing. Like just these fast, like downstroke strums. It adds something really cool to it. It sounds very cool, the three of them all together. And you hear, like you get back in the jam and then Ed kind of brings you off in space and then just brings you right back to earth with this like kind of brutal buzzsaw rhythm on the rhythm guitar. It was really, really well done. The Ebo was very, very prominent in this version, yes, for sure. Well, like I said, it's not going to the encore, they're staying on stage, but I got shit in the black makes you think, oh, this could have been a start of an encore right here. And it's also kind of a fake out because the bootleg actually fades out after oh, Rearview yeah. Mirror and fades in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, so you're going to discs two at this point. So, yeah, it's it's a little bit deceptive, but it's just kind of a, a cool little thing. But, yeah. I will admit I did write – usually I did I did make the line that I that usually delineates the encore. I was like, well, this is going to be it. But <laughs> I had to scratch it out when they when they kept going. Well, that's the thing. I think that's the thing that they were going for. Like, yeah. okay, we're done. Wait, we're not done. We're getting more. And it kind of leads you to think, oh, okay, like we got a lot in this show. We got a lot more than anticipated, expected, and all that. But really, R- River Mirror, I believe, is only the 15th song. So if they ended with that, then it's kind of like, oh, well, the main set is shortchanged. Yeah. Yeah. So can't have it both ways. But yeah, I got shit very good. Black as well it was cool kind of change to lyrics when ed was doing the we're spinning no we're spinning instead of the i'm spinning and also like i think one of the longest all i'll be that i've ever heard on this think I've ever heard him hold it out for that long. Like, that was pretty incredible for Matt. Yeah, just the power behind his voice. This whole show, I mean, it felt like they were all just on another level, really worked up to this and decided before the show that, like, we're just going to let it hang out tonight. Just go for it. Like, again, leave nothing on the stage. An incredible version of Black. And then the first ten songs since the opener even flow. So you've gone through this whole set to get back and then you're going to bookend it with two ten songs here. But Oh, everything from Slide of Hand to Porch is just stellar. Like, I thought it was just one great performance after another. Even I Got Shit was very, very good. I mean, usually I could talk about that for five minutes, but it feels like it even gets overlooked here because of the, the stuff around it. All right, well, before closing out the main set with Porch, it seemed like what happened here was somebody in the front, after Black had finished, had shouted out Porch. 
And because he was right, it seemed like Ed tossed them the mic, and then they got to do the one, two, three, four at the beginning. Another thing that you kind of need video for to really kind of feel and understand the moment, but that's pretty cool. Amy wasn't the only fan that got interpreted into this show. Yeah, that's yep. cool version. All of a sudden, this other voice comes in with the one, two, three, four, and you're like, wait, what? One, two, three, four. What the fuck is this world? You know, Porch wasn't an every night song in 2000, and by every night, right. not an every night song, it was only played 27 times in North America, which, I mean, like, apples to apples here. You know, they did over 40 shows, so it's not the obvious closer at the end of the set, as it kind of turned into, but yeah, you know, I, I kind of felt like it was even just a much shorter version of this, and I thought that the solo even, like, it's, it's crazy that Mike goes off and smashes his, his guitar, because from the solo aspect, I'm listening to this, I'm like, you know, I didn't think that this was like an all-out sort of thing. I thought that this was kind of like a version of Porch that just kind of went along with normal versions of Porch. I didn't think anything spectacular about it, but it did have a big closing act feel to it. And Ed's apparently running into the speakers at full force. And Mike is, you know, as I mentioned, smashing his guitar. So it felt like the band kind of was going through that release, as, as you kind of mentioned earlier in the show, where they kind of finished this part up. They have only a handful of songs left for this night. And that's it. Go home for a little while. Like, it felt like a little bit of that. Like, okay, we're on our way now. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned, you know, Five Horizons called the Manic. I think that's probably an appropriate word. There's definitely a, like an energy on stage that you can feel that's like very tangible and very like they're channeling something like like I mentioned a couple of times. Like they've obviously got a lot of stuff on their mind on this last night of this leg. There's definitely a concerted effort to like let's go nuts tonight. And Porch is a good closer for a night like that. Again, this is one I would love to see a video of this just to get a feel for what that looked like. You can kind of let your imagination go wild. You know, we've seen it enough in the early days to know kind of what this looks like on porch. All right, we're at the Encore. Let's pause for station identification and remind you guys of Patreon a little bit. And I guess, you know, we, we had some leftover stuff from the conversation with Amy and we are going to put that up over on our Patreon. So there will be like a little bit of bonus content over there this week. We're going to put on a little bit of the stuff that we left off of this conversation on Patreon with Amy. And then we are also going to put on the preset from this show. So you'll be able to listen to both things. Uh, that's for people that already subscribe over there as well as people that are going to subscribe maybe today or tomorrow. Here's how to do that. Head on over to patreon.com slash live on four legs. There are three tiers. If you feel like donating for the $1 tier, the bonus leg tier, that will get you everything as far as content goes for Patreon. And we've been doing it for like four years now. There's no lack of material. You can go back a long ways and you could be listening to this for you know, a couple of months before you kind of get through the whole thing and catch up. There's no lack of content there. For anybody that wants to join up on the Gigaleg tier, that's $5 a month. 
And that will get you kind of like what it got Eric today, a requested show. If there is a story that you're itching to tell, a show that doesn't get a lot of love that you want us to give love, we'll gladly give it love. You just got to give it the request. And that's how you get it through that tier, as well as the Horizon Leg tier, which that is part of. You also get a requested episode as well as a profile episode. Also, we're putting together some new merch packages. Not a lot of information on that at the moment, but those will be available for Horizon tier members as well. So again, if you want to go and donate, patreon.com slash live on four legs or go to the Patreon app and search for live on four legs or go to live on four legs.com and you'll see up at the top, there's a button that says become a patron. Just click that and you're all good. So in about a couple weeks time, heading over to Seattle for the closing of Mopop and Record Store Day. So for any Seattle people that are out there that are interested in spending some time and getting to meet and kind of meet some of the friends of the community as well, feel free, let us know, send an email, direct message through any of the social medias. We'd love to end up meeting a bunch of you if you happen to be in town. So Thank you, everybody, for continuing to donate to Patreon, continuing to listen to this podcast. It is the fuel that runs this baby. Back to the rock. Okay, everybody is coming back out on stage, and apparently before this, a security guard had told some people in front that they had been taking a while, and they had told some people, like, they're coming up with something crazy. Just be patient, just wait. Like, they got something in store, they got something together, and he was right. So, (laughs) Stone comes on stage saying, we have the list! And Ed kind of then addresses the list, saying, and this is a, a very common quote that he says, and it's pretty true for most of the part, saying, usually it's not the last night that feels like the last night, it's usually the second to last night where you have a blast, but this one's been different. Fuck the talking, let's start rocking. Three in a row here, all album openers, Break or Fall, go once. I love this version of Break or Fall. I think that this is the one out of these. Ed comes out screaming right out of the gate from this. And like, yeah, he's just in some kind of mood. Weirdly, in somewhere in the second verse, you can hear him say under his breath, he just goes, ah, fuck that bitch. And it's just like, whoa, where are you coming from? It feels like he was kind of in some just ulterior mindset while going through this song. And and yeah, like it just leads to him just shredding this at the end and just screaming all the end parts too. And and just a very scorching pace on this and kind of leading the way to a couple of really good performances of Going Once as well. I thought Go was the one. I mean, album openers are definitely your cup of tea. It's cool to start an encore like that. That's definitely concerted, I think, on its part to come out with those. But I thought Go was the one where he just sounded unhinged. Just, again, you could tell as the song kept going going, he felt like he was just losing it. And, like, you know, not in a bad way. Like, we talk about, oh, I'm losing his voice and can't hit the nose. But, no, like, losing it in an insane person gone away and kind of channeling that through the performances. But, yeah, this is just, like... A lot of times you come out like, oh, they're going to come out in the encore and have a slow burn. But no, they came out blazing at this, like leaving nothing on stage, just going full throttle right from the start here. 
yeah, there's even a moment, and this is the whole mentality for this encore and really overall this whole show, as I mentioned, but there's a moment in once where you can hear him instead of the, it could happen to me, it could happen to you, he's saying, we're going home during that part in once. And even even once just had a ton of fuel and momentum off that. Like the solo is very showy in it, and you can hear like Ed is just on a high during this. The whole thing. very inspired performances, all three right in a row. Yeah, the opener part of the set list was very very well done, and the crowd was getting into it as well because there were people throwing glow sticks on stage and kicking beach balls everywhere. And you got to think, last night of the tour is where you want the massive party to happen, and. That's happening here. It's happening all around. So good for the crowd for bringing their A game and just celebrating in that aspect. Well, Stone kind of had the list in hand, and if he helped write the list, then I'm sure it wasn't him that picked this next one. But he says, all right, I'm going to sing one. Fuck it. Mankind and Small Town are going to be packaged together right here. And Mankind is just crisp. This version of Mankind just feels like every note is hit feels like everything is smooth feels like they're just on top of it and i think we've kind of mentioned this before on versions of mankind that have felt really inspired that there's a time probably after the state college version of this where it's kind of like okay it becomes sort of a gimmick it's the stone song and everybody just wants to hear stone sing so performances are a little bit haphazard and stuff like that but this had a lot of intensity and just a great rock and roll performance and there's somebody else that agreed with me that would be javier so let's listen to what he had to say about it Outstanding version. The highlight of the show for me. Seriously. I don't know if this concept exists or not, but we're gonna call it a very punk metal version of Mankind. The other fun fact is I don't know if I've ever heard Mike McCready do pinch harmonics in a Pearl Jam song. Might be wrong, but it's the first time for me at least. If you're wondering what a pinch harmonic is, is a technique that it was used a lot of in the 80s in metal, in rock metal music, in a lot of like hair metal bands. There's no effects, there's nothing related with your equipment, nor any pedals. It's just in the way that you attack the string with your guitar pick and a little bit of work over the left hand as well. Something that this version remind me of as well is the concept of the wall of sound which is a concept that was created by Phil Spector, which you wanted to make your mix as dense as you could and as wide and big as you could. A lot of the bands in the 60s and the 70s were using this concept to play live and to record. The Who, The Kinks, T-Rex in the 90s, a little bit of Pearl Jam in the 10 mix, but also Oasis, Blur, The Verve, so many others. But in the way that the band sounds at this tour live, 
it just sounds so dense and big. And I think it's also because of the equipment that they were picking up at that time. But I think there's a really clear intention to imitate that concept when they were like uh, executing their live performances. I think you mentioned sounded like a hybrid kind of punk metal version of Mankind. The closest thing you're going to get to probably Motorhead at a Pearl Jam show. I mean, yeah, on this night, and the last night of tour, like, yeah, Stone's going to get to sing one out. Yeah, I thought this was great as well. Small Town, after that, kind of took on more of the downtrodden rocker, but it has a great moment at the end where Ed's vocals are isolated. You can't really hear much else behind him, and he's singing the fade away as the crowd just cheers him on. I thought that that was a really cool moment. Yeah, not a song that feels like it would fit in this, but again, needed probably a, a big crowd moment here before you're going to get to the craziness that's going to come later. So given this crowd, like one more chance to sing along, you know, Crazy Mary wasn't yet the big thing that it would become as well. So yeah, throwing in a small town here to give the crowd one more moment. It's coming. It's, it's not coming later. It's coming basically yeah. now because Ed says to steal a quote from another band from Seattle, we're going to start going crazy on you. Of course, that being a hard song. There's a woman in the back with a white umbrella. You know who you are. Security, let the woman through. And you come to the side of the stage and we'll talk to you before the next song. Here's some music as you walk down. Crazy Mary. This is, of course, got to be noted here, 2000 version of Crazy Mary. It's in that weird spot of being the pre-boom versions that they play on this tour the 13th performance all time of this so they were playing it a little bit on this leg here and there but also i think we have a world record for this version of crazy mary because this (laughs) clocks in at under five minutes i don't think i've ever seen that before even in these versions where yeah they don't have a duel or anything like that mikey can extend the solo and usually goes for a little bit longer. You know, we usually get to around like six, but not under five. That was like 445 max. Yeah, this is normally like a very kind of meandering, relaxed kind of song that Mike can kind of stretch out and play around and do some different things. But yeah, this one was very, very like... This is the song that is serving the purpose of of getting getting Amy down to the stage. So I think once she got down to the stage, they were like, all right, we're ready to go. Cut, cut that's, it off. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, too. Like, they were probably too eager to get to that moment and to really kind of work with that song and, and yeah. you know, finish up that song. But, yeah, it's just a lead up. It's just a lead up. So, so then we're going to address this whole thing and we're going to talk about it and we're going to make a moment right here. Did our friend with the white umbrella make it even close to the stage? Did that work? Oh, if she's here, come on over. Or he or she, I could never see it. Hey, everybody, this is Amy. how many shows she's been to because we've seen her at like at least the last 12 or I don't know you've had your umbrella so I thought she was going to say 12 or 15 she said over 100 oh my god (laughs) 
don't try this anybody else because this is the last time we're ever going to do it. But this was really nice. I've been seeing this for a long time. And we're going to play the song. And it might not be perfect. Wash, it had been 130 shows since the last time they had played it in Barcelona, Spain in 1996. And what we were talking a little bit about before, the Breath campaign and songs like Hard to Imagine coming back. And like, you know, even though we didn't have a lot of information about that specific reason, but that sort of kind of led to Wash being here. And like those versions, especially the version of Breath, there is hesitancy here there are moments where ed doesn't have a clue what the lyrics are and even improvs at a point i can't replace the lyrics i wrote in the past something like i can replace the words i wrote in the past yeah the words i wrote in the past something like that yep and it's also you got to think of this this is matt's first time ever playing it so i wonder how familiar he was because if you're listening to him it doesn't exactly have the booming drum presence that Wash should have. However, it's not really the version to kind of dissect this stuff because this is a moment in time that people have remembered to this point. And as kind of mentioned before, the bootlegs that were pretty fresh at that time that everybody was trying to get their hands on, a lot of people had heard about this show and heard about this moment and said, I need to hear this. I need to hear what happened here. And it kind of became folklore. And for somebody that had been reading Five Horizons at the time that had been following up a little bit, I know 2000 was kind of maybe a little bit of a dead period for you, but knowing this and kind of knowing this information, did that make you like want to go and seek this boot right away? I think so. And I would definitely go to like the record store Best Buy or wherever you could find these the CDs when they came out and I would flip through the set list and be like okay like what stands out and which one should I get and I must not have seen this one because if I had seen this with Wash like I would have bought this but I know some of them were like pressed more than other ones and some of them were harder to find in different places and being down here in the south you know it was easy to find Atlanta and some of the southern ones but not as easy to find some of the other ones so I don't think I ever if I had seen this in the store I definitely would have bought it but yeah definitely going back and and looking at Five Horizons and reading the story like man like what would it be like to have a moment like that and you just kind of try to put yourself in Amy's place like god that'd be incredible and she did such a great job of like 
putting that into words and kind of going back and letting us know like what that was like and what she was going through. But yeah, I mean, just an incredible moment to have like, and yeah, the performance itself, like sure, whatever, but it's the fact that they played it and they brought it back. And it's just another thing that Pearl Jam does for their fans. You could put it right up there with breath and hard to imagine and things like that. This is a really, really big moment. Yeah, it's a moment that if you were there, you specifically remember this, you specifically remember the white umbrella, and it's just one of those things that just kind of keeps getting passed down, and Amy seems so humble about it, and she kind of said, yeah, no big deal. She kind of also like really understood the point of how important it was, too, when she said that people will go and explain why they want to go to all these Pearl Jam shows to their parents and would use her as a reference so for something like that like that is so much different than you know just kind of a prop that was used for this moment like i get that that could be bigger than that sometimes so you know ed's gonna thank amy after that and we'll uh repeat the sentiment too another big thank you for coming on and and sharing all that with Mm -hmm. us just terrific story you don't get that anywhere else so You want more rare ones? We're going to get more rare ones. And it feels like they have to go to a huddle a couple times is what Five Horizons say. And you can hear them mess around with it. And Ed just kind of, after a second or so, he's like, what the fuck? We have a day off tomorrow. Let's just do it. For the first time since Verona from earlier in that European tour, they are playing the split end song, I Got You. It's reminiscent here of the first time that they ever played Don't Get Me No Lip in Ottawa in in 05, where Stone is calling out, bridge, bridge, bridge. And you can hear that, and you can kind of hear the transition, the changes. You you hear on the chorus, because they finish like the first part, but the song has it again. They do the whole kind of chorus again right after. So once that part happens, you hear Ed's like, do it again, do it again. And just kind of crazy off the fly moments like that that's just like yeah they wanted to get this song in and they made it happen not any bit of a perfect means but they're making a moment here for a song that only got played 10 times in total and most of those being down in like australia and playing with neil or liam finn or someone like that so yeah honestly with all of the imperfections that you can say that this has it was a really nice moment. I enjoyed this performance a lot. And I consider it to be a signature moment of the song. Like, yeah, they go off and, and Stone would quip afterwards. Nothing like an improv. But the melody of it 
drew me back into what this song is all about, and I really love the performance. It always reminds that moment when Ed shouts out, you know, one more time, like it's the Back to the Future moment. It's like, you know, watch me for the changes. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna carry this thing. But yeah, I mean, I got you is it's just a great song. Like Eric mentioned that this was his his favorite cover, and then one of the reasons he wanted to do this show. And yeah, I agree. It's it starts out a little tentative, but they end up getting to a really good place with it. And yeah, I agree. I thought this was really really good. I always like when this pops up. It should it should, it should be played more. And now I'm going to take the opportunity to talk to all the parents out there whose kids are obsessed with the show Bluey. So, if you're not familiar with the show, it's an Australian kids show. It's, it's fantastic. My kid watches it. And my wife and I love it. And I had just been reading something about the new season, and Neil Finn is a guest voice in the new season. So, if that's something that excites you, well, there you have it. It excites me, so I can't wait to see what his role is in that. Maybe he'll actually get to sing I Got You or Don't Dream It's Over or something like that, but we'll see. We'll see. All right. We're getting this to end the set here. They do leave, but it's not a set closer at all. I don't think we've ever seen this in a set closing spot, especially if you're not considering them to come out for an encore too. Like, could this have possibly been a show closer? It's insignificance. So I think it's another factor of like having to be a little bit creative when Alive is not in your set list. And this happened this whole entire year that they had to kind of find other things that would work here. A lot of their big songs like Black and Better Man and stuff like that that might have gotten thrown into the spot were already played. Rearview Mirror, Porch, already played. So now you're relying on maybe one of their favorite songs off the new album that they were doing live to this point and saying that this is a deserving moment for this to be in the spot. Yeah, I agree. And again, it's it's also a function of like last night of tour where we talked about with Even Flow, just, just throw shit at the wall. Like, who cares? Let's just go crazy tonight and let it all hang out and see what happens. But I, I think it holds up. I mean, it's a little weird on paper to even coming after the big moment with Wash and then kind of underplayed cover and I got you. You're like, oh, like we're at the celebration part. They're going to go. It's going to be rocking the free world. It's going to be something like that. But going back in insignificance, I think, is a really kind of powerful choice there and kind of puts a kind of a period on this encore is like, no, we've definitely like got something on our minds tonight. And again, a really great version. I mean, you feel like after the last two, it would be a little bit loose and a little bit drunken, but it's not. It's a really strong version of Insignificance. It holds up. Yeah, I just wanted to hear it rip through at the ending and have that be like the final thing that you hear for this portion of the set. And yeah, it did its job. It was excellent. It would have been interesting if that's how they ended the tour, but you got to go off on a big party song. They're going to get to Baba. They're going to invite Sonic Youth back on stage, and he ends up thanking them for not only inspiring them artistically, musically, or physically. If you look back at your life sometimes, you could see paths and connections there. If it weren't for the band Sonic Youth, we probably all wouldn't be in this room tonight. It's my last chance to say that before we part. It's a meaningful thing to have them play with us. The survivors of the trip are going to play with us here. That's Lee, Steve, and Jim. Thank you all for being here. It was a tough one. You made it hard to quit. Thanks a lot. That line right there. If that doesn't cut deep, then I don't know what does. Yep. 
Uh, you're getting one last one for everybody to start celebrating. Bob O'Reilly hits. As Eric mentioned in his story, Keeley hit the lights and, you know, good way to say goodbye and thank you to this crowd that was excellent the whole entire night. And it was just their way of having fun. It felt at times during this that they could have literally have gone on forever and been okay with that. Like they were really stretching this out as much as they could. Yeah, it's got the big crowd sing along, which we hadn't heard a lot at the show. And it's got the really big kind of rock ending, which fits the occasion perfectly. And just, yeah, just one song and encore two, and then and then get out and go home. That's it. And then they wave goodbye. Thank everybody on the crew. There's, it's been like a family. We've struggled, but we made it. Thanks so much. We really appreciate all the help. And that's how you end the first leg of the North American tour in 2000. All right, let's go and pick some of our favorite moments. I'll go first here. I'm going to go with number three, I'm going to say, is Corduroy. Just a powerful, excellent version there. And number two, I'm going to say Break or Fall. Again, I thought that Ed was just in full fierce mode on this. Just excellent and kind of set the tone for what the rest of the encore is going to be. And, you know, it's Wash is number one because that's the moment that makes the show stand out. And again, it's not a performance, but it's a moment. And that's more significant than any singular song performance at times. Because you got to think, like, what people go back to at these shows sometimes, you can see black hundreds of times, and it could be excellent. You can see lots of different songs. You can see rare songs. You can see common songs, and they can all have a different effect on you. But if you see this, this specific thing is not happening at any other show. It is unique to this one show. That's what's important about it. That's an easy layup number one for me. Yeah, I think I'm with you on that. My number three is Rearview Mirror. My number two is In My Tree. And yeah, number one is Wash for sure. Okay, so you like the show a whole lot. Let's see what your rating is going to be, but I'm going to get to mine first, I think. I like the show a whole lot, but I think I would have loved it more if we had video. And that's the only thing that's like just the blank spot that's missing for me here, unfortunately. But let's not put the droopy dagger into this. The band was on fire for the show. They had a statement they wanted to make and they wanted to go out with a huge presence and kind of take the time to, you know, try some things that were unprecedented like wash like i got you you know like even flow opening the set there were a lot of things that happened in this that don't happen at normal pearl jam shows and they were willing to take that risk and just for that like that's impressive on its own and the performances that kind of surrounded it and everything the stories that kind of happen are very very important too i am going to give this a nine and a half and i bet that if it had video I would have bumped it up, but that's what's keeping me there. Oh, that's a tough way to knock a half a point there. Uh, but um, I think that that's fair though, right? Because oh, you, get, you kind of know. miss some of this connection. You could definitely feel it comes through. There's definitely a palpable energy on stage for the show that is not always present. And I think this show makes a really good compliment or a bookend to Virginia Beach, which was super powerful and super emotional and this one i think 
ties a bow on that or like continues that narrative very nicely and builds on that and takes you to where they would go for the rest of the year up through to Seattle. And again, they played all of my favorite songs here. Uh, I'm giving this a 10. Well, no Hall of Fame shows in 2023 so far. We'll see if we'll get there. I think there's like a couple obvious that are going to come later in the year, but it was a possibility for this one if anybody was holding on to hope, but it just missed. So you haven't well, given a 10 to anything this year? No, I not. I'll let you know what I do. Uh, oh, You'll I'm, be the first I'm to sure know. You will. Sure you, you, will. Will, you will literally be the first <laughs> to know unless we're doing a live episode and we're not on a delay or something like that. You will literally be the first to know. I'm not going to tell my dog, my kid or my wife. We, I we, should do, we should do a live episode at some point. I would love to. Yeah. It's gone through my head. Like how the hell yeah. do we do it? How do we play right. the music behind it? Yeah. Right. If anybody's more of a technician with this stuff, then um, yeah, that was actually an idea a long time ago when we were covering the live at the garden DVD, that show. Yeah. And I wanted to play the DVD in full right. while we would comment on it. But right. yeah, that's no, but I mean, like, like do uh, like the next time Pearl Jam tours, we do an episode like at the venue, like we sit outside and then do an episode on something. That, that's, that's like the thing that all podcasts do. It's like, yeah. Oh, the big podcast, yeah. like get together, meet up and Hey, this is going to be out as a podcast. So, yeah. I mean, it's so tough on our end because yeah, it'd be, our show is heavily, heavily edited. You could, you could have someone with a little boom box and the bootleg CD there to play clips and like have it all queued up. Oh, man, I think I would go even further than that. I would have a screen behind us, get something that's on YouTube, play it, and, you know, play it over big speakers on a boombox. I'm going to make it big, go big or go home, you know? Yeah, yeah. But Hmm. Something to think about. Something to think about. Yeah, I'm up for that idea. I'm also up for the idea that next week we cover a 1994 show because that is Very much up for that. That we haven't done in a very, very long time. Not because we don't want to. It's just because there are a lot of things that we have gotten to in between. This week, coming up, we're going to give you Murfreesboro from 94. And that is the show that they play with Steve Cropper. And they do Dock of the Bay, which had always been passed around in bootlegs and tapes and stuff like that. And one of the ultimate OTOTOs in their catalog. So excited to touch up on that. If you enjoy what you listen to today, if you enjoy what you listen to the last week or the last month or the last however long that you've been listening to the show, then would love for you guys to do us a favor and head on over to one of the podcast platforms that you use. The big ones obviously being Spotify or Apple pod, and you can give us a rating, head on over and give us a rating. Hopefully we have earned the five stars. And if we have earned that, Please feel free to share that, and that will help boost our visibility. And also on Apple, you can leave us a comment as well. And the comment's not for us. The comment is for, of course, other people looking for this podcast and looking for something Pearl Jam related to listen to, because this is a word of mouth thing. If one person talks about it, then the next time that they're touring, they'll go to a show and they'll be like, hey, that show was covered by these guys that do a podcast. And 
it just keeps kind of spreading. It spread on the last tour, and we hope that it spreads on the future tours as well. So that all kind of helps go into it, and your help would be greatly, greatly appreciated. And if you do that, please email us and let us know, and we will send you a thank you gift. All right. Until Murfreesboro next week. This may be the end. We're here, but not for much longer. And although we may be parting ways, miss you already, miss you always. Well, it's not raining today, so I don't need any kind of umbrella. But if we were to bring it to the next show, maybe I'd have to draw a little brain on it to get what I want. But until then, we'll see you next week. Up the talking, let's start rocking. Thanks, everyone, for coming. It's been a, a tough one. You make it hard to quit, really. Thanks a lot. And to our whole crew that's been on this tour, thanks a lot. It's been like a family. We've struggled but made it. So thanks. Thank you all, really. Thanks. Let's go home. <laughs>